Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. If you do mainly medical research in an academic setting, you're not going to get rich, okay? You'll make maybe a comfortable living, but it has to be something you enjoy. And really, I think the best term for it is really you have to have a fire in the belly for it. It's not only you want to do it, it's like you can't help doing it something you're driven to do. And those are the folks who who are most successful re- with research is they live and breathe it and uh, and they enjoy it and it's fulfilling for them and they can't keep from doing it. Life's hard, but when you find your path in life, you'll find fulfillment. I'm Sam Coates and welcome to the Driven By Podcast. On this show, I talk to people with purpose. And hearing these stories and conversations, my hope is that you'll see your path, which will bring out the best in you. Follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram at Sam P. Coates, and learn more about my guests and subscribe to the show at drivenbypodcast.com. My guest today is Dr. Dennis Black. Dr. Black is one of a kind. I heard of Dr. Black from a listener to this podcast, and once I heard how established he is as an accomplished researcher and an award-winning physician, while also being an avid fan of Bonnaroo, I couldn't help but ask him to be on the show. I had a great time with Dr. Black, where we cover the time when he wanted to be a mad scientist as a kid, and he lit a desk on fire, the patience and persistence of a researcher, why he loves pouring into students, finding their way how research is changing, and why data is being used to proactively solve problems, and more. Dr. Black is currently the scientific director of the Children's Foundation Research Institute. He's also the Buckman Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. Lastly, Dr. Black is the co-owner of the Memphis-based music label Black & Wyatt Records. Please enjoy this week's episode with Dr. Dennis Black. Dr. Black, great to see you. Thanks for coming on this afternoon. Sam, it's my pleasure. First question I got, this is actually from a listener to this podcast that loves you, but I've heard you're a huge fan of Bonnaroo and that you frequent Bonnaroo quite often. Can we talk about that? Uh, certainly. Uh, I have gone to every single Bonnaroo since it started in 2002, except for two of them. Uh, there was one year, uh, a few years ago, we decided to go to Lollapalooza oh, in wow. Chicago. And we lived in Chicago for about 10 years, so we were familiar with Grant Park and all of that. So 
uh, Lollapalooza conflicted with Bonnaroo that year. My whole family goes. My, my wife goes. My three uh, grown kids go. Their friends go. Uh, we just make a big, um, a big family trip out of it. And uh, we, we have a great time. We, we all love music. And the nice thing about Bonnaroo is they have a wide variety. I mean, you, there's not only rock, but they even have bluegrass and jazz and funk. And I mean, you name it. And there's something there for everybody. So the whole family loves it. So we, we pile up and go. Now, unfortunately... Last year, they didn't have it. This year, it's going to be in October. And doggone it, when I had found out about it and got online, they had sold all the tickets. They sold really? them within, I guess, two or three days. So I guess I'm going to have to find a scalper or something, you know. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't mention that. But uh, anyway. The first year you went in 2002, was there a particular band that you love or – was it just the idea of Bonnaroo starting? What is it that drew you in early on? Uh, just the idea of it. I've, I've been a big music fan all my life. And, and I guess that's rubbed off on my kids. And uh, we had, uh, particularly when we lived in Chicago, we, there were a lot of music festivals, a lot of venues, and we'd go to a lot of live shows. And then when, we, uh, when I moved back to Memphis, which was about late 1999, uh, shortly thereafter, I think the first Bonnaroo was in 2002. We heard about it and, you know, just thought we'd go. And I, I don't, you know, in a specific band, I know that some of the early shows, there were people like um, uh, Fish. I think even Neil Young showed up uh, early on there. Uh, Dave Matthews and, uh, and, and a lot of folks who, who were especially good in a live venue were there and uh so we it was to, and, and we were just we were enchanted and hooked on it from the very beginning so we've go back every year when you said you were talking about fish dave matthews and neil young which i've only of those three a good friend of mine is a i mean i don't know how many times he's seen fish and i guess that's a common denominator for everyone that loves fish but you know i've seen dave matthews a few times and well, at this, this particular show, uh, it was Trey Anastasio playing with Dave Matthews. Well, wow. together, so that uh, that that was one of the shows. Fish Fish was there too, but he happened to show up at that uh, one Dave Matthews set. Yeah. So when you say great at a live venue specifically, what are the things? Just being a fan of music, being a fan of concerts, being a fan of community, from what it sounds like just so far with what we're talking, what are the things that you see with the best performers that you love that are excellent at live venues? What are the things they do? Well, they really connect with the audience. I think the best live performers are folks that not only are superb musicians and you know do a great job playing the music, but there's an extra dimension to that where they connect I don't know if it's um, spiritually or however you want to describe it, but j just to forge a, a connection with the audience that is uh, you, you, you don't get with recorded music, no matter how great it is, that just makes it, in some cases, it's almost a spiritual type experience. You know, I'm, I won't say religious, but, you know, it's an emotional thing and that's and that's one of the things i've always liked about uh, live music R really good live music from the folks who can play it that way yes sir do y'all 
I mean, do y'all tent camp? Do y'all camp? Do y'all go in an RV well, or what do y'all do? I'm, I'm not one to rough it. So yeah. I'm almost ashamed to say that we, we get a hotel. Okay. At least I and my wife, we get a hotel. Now my kids, they camp out. They, they rough it. But I like to go back at the end of the day and have a shower and sleep in a real bed. So, yeah. Uh, that's, that's my one concession. Is that Manchester? Yeah. So you, you get a hotel in Manchester? Uh, usually, uh, you know, there's some ra- surrounding areas like Shelbyville and some other towns, and it's usually only a 30-minute or so drive. And Manchester, they, even the hotels fill up pretty quick, and they're pretty expensive. If you, yeah. if you stay a little bit further out, you can get something cheaper. I don't know if Uber still does this, but I know a few years ago, I think you could get a helicopter commute ride to Bonnaroo from, on Uber, Uber platform helicopter. That'd be fun. Yeah, it would. I didn't hear about that, but I'll keep that in mind next time. So, I mean, is traffic terrible at night or in, like when you're commuting over? Or is uh, it- the first few years they had it, traffic on the interstate and everything going through there was pretty, uh, pretty horrific. But they, uh, they opened some additional entrances with, uh, from other uh, roads and whatever. And, uh, and, and over the years, it became much less congested. And then leaving and going in, they have day parking, so you can drive in during the day, drive out, and most people are staying on site with their cars parked next to their tent. Uh, so there's very little traffic, uh, you know, going in and out during the day or in the evening. Uh, it's just for folks who are staying off site. So yeah. it's really not a problem. That's neat. Is there a particular band or group or individual that you've seen just an enormous amount of times? Uh, well, actually, one of the people I really uh, have really in- liked ever since I can remember, maybe 1970 or so, was John Prine. Yeah. Uh, you know, a folk singer. He, he passed away this past year from COVID-19. And uh, he just, uh, I followed him through his career. He really connects with the audience. He's uh, appeals to a wide range of folks and Roger Waters of uh, Pink Floyd names John Prine in his top three songwriters. So just to give you an idea of the kind of appeal he has. And um, uh, just always put on a great show. So and, and he played uh, Bonnaroo uh, several occasions and, and put on a great show. Actually, the, the last one I went to in 2019, he played. Sheesh, it's crazy how, how he stayed at it for so long. Yep. Well, he left a big legacy of music behind. Yeah. So you lived in Chicago, but you're from Memphis and yeah. went to UT, correct? And then yeah, I grew up. I grew up in Covington, Tennessee, a little bit north of here. Uh, and that's where I was, yeah. I was born there and uh, grew up there, and uh, went to high school there, and then went to college at University of Memphis. Of course, back then it was Memphis State, and uh, went to college there, and then went to uh, medical school, uh, UT. Uh, here at UTHSC and uh, did my uh, pediatric training at Le Bonner, did a fellowship in gastroenterology at Le Bonner. Then I moved to University of Chicago and I was there for about 10 years. Uh, and actually, I, when I left, I left there, I went to Arkansas and was at Arkansas Children's Hospital for about five years. Then I was recruited back to Le Bonner to be uh, the uh, director of the research institute here which was a great opportunity, and uh, I t- eagerly took the job. And uh, my wife, who is a pediatrician, 
we met when we were residents at Le Bonheur. Wow. And so she's a general pediatrician who works here at Le Bonheur. So it was a great move for both of us, and we've been very happy with it. Was that Little Rock or Fayetteville in Arkansas? In, in Little Rock. Okay. Wow. And that was in 93 when the Institute was formed, correct? Yeah. The, uh, the, the Children's Foundation of Memphis, a terrific philanthropic uh, group, uh, these are some ladies who uh, got together. Actually, they, they, they date back further than that. They were originally called the uh, Cripple Children's Foundation, and they supported polio victims. And they actually owned uh, a, a rehab hospital, uh, apparently down in near the downtown area. Of course, when polio was finally pretty much eradicated, they needed to change their focus, and they uh, finally decided they would uh, support a research center at Le Bonheur that would focus on research to improve the lives of children. So this was a partnership with Children's Foundation of Memphis. I, I, eventually, they changed their name. They dropped the cripple after the polio went away and became the Children's Foundation of Memphis. They partnered with UTHSC and with Le Bonheur and uh, made a large donation. And when the, at that time, the, the research tower, uh, you see the new hospital behind me here, yeah. uh, built about 10 years ago. Well, prior to that, the, the research tower, which is over to the side, uh, was originally a, just a tower of the hospital. And that was built in the mid-90s, 93, I guess is when it started. And they uh, built some laboratories. A couple of floors of that tower were dedicated to research. And that was funded by the Children's Foundation. And that's how it all got started. And they allowed uh, funding for a director, which is where I came in, and some operating uh, funds. And, uh, and we got up and going. And that was sort of when research at Le Bonheur really started uh, to build. We had laboratories to do basic uh, research, you know, with, with mice and cells and that kind of thing. We also had space to do clinical research where we could bring patients in and do clinical trials. And that continued to grow. And then the next big, uh, uh, big phase of that is when Mary Armour came in as the CEO of Le Bonheur. And I suppose that was about 10 years or so ago. I hope I'm not too far off on that. But... <laughs> It was, uh, it was really, she, she was just tremendous. She came in from Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital, and she had a vision, and not only for Le Bonheur, but for research. And she had experience with research. She had been a, uh, had a nursing background in research nursing, and she just included that in her vision for Le Bonheur, and the hospital began to pour a lot of support into developing the research institute. And, um, and the next thing that happened after that, John McCullers came in as the chair from St. Jude. We strengthened our uh, affiliation with St. Jude. And uh, under his um, tenure as chair, he doubled the faculty at, at Le Bonheur, you know, from the Department of Pediatrics uh, from uh, around 100 or so to over 200, and built uh, some institutes of excellence, the Heart Institute, the Neuroscience Institute, other strong programs, and again, was a tremendous supporter of research. So it's made my job fun. I've, yeah. I've enjoyed it. 
So you you were brought in early, and they just kind of empowered you mm-hmm. and really tried to understand you know what you need. And obviously, they had experience, I guess, in their own way prior. But then you've been able to, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, you've been able to kind of have a lot of support mm-hmm. to really you know make. We hadn't even gotten to the impact, but. Is that the way it is? I mean, they just brought you in and kind of wanted to empower you as much as possible. Well, they wanted a, you know, wanted someone to lead the the research effort. Uh, Russell Chesney, who was the chair at the time of pediatrics, again a a real towering figure in pediatrics. He, you know, really was the vision of the department of pediatrics. You know, the the faculty in the department of pediatrics are the folks who, the physicians who take care of the patients at Lavonner. He's the one who really recruited me. And he said, you know, I want you to come in and take what we have, build on it, and make a place for researchers to to come in in pediatrics and have what they need, space, the resources, uh, collaboration to to build their programs. And that's pretty much what we did. Curious, what's kept you engaged for close to 30 years with this specific chapter and obviously it looks like and sounds like which we ain't going too much detail still you know still rocking and rolling but what's kept you engaged since 1993 for this work i really enjoy it and one of the things that was really important to me in my career was uh was having a uh, every stage of the way i had a a mentor somebody who kind of took me under their wing and gave me advice took an interest in uh what I wanted to do, uh, you know, kind of pointed the way for, uh, you know, for, uh, and this was all the way from high school. I had teachers, science teachers. When I was at University of Memphis, the chair of the physics department, Carol Imes, saw something in me and kind of called me in his office one day and said, son, you need to go to medical school. This is what you need to do and help me. And in medical school, I had uh, mentors and, I, and, it, and it just appealed to me. And so as I moved along and got in a position to mentor junior people, you know, uh, younger than me, I started doing that and really enjoy it. So a big part of what I do is not only facilitate getting the research done, but I try to offer uh, mentoring and advice to the young faculty members and even medical students and fellows, uh, trainees, you know, to help them navigate their career choice, and particularly if they have an interest in research, I try to, you know, help them engage in that and, uh, you know, and further their career. And I enjoy that. And that is really what keeps me going. And re- I mean, that science itself is great. I mean, how many, how many professions can you, uh, and there's some maybe in the arts and whatever, where you can basically design your own experiments, your own uh, kind of creation, and you can get funded for uh, carrying it out. And then you get to uh, produce some knowledge that didn't exist before, and that will hopefully be uh, helpful in taking care of uh, patients, in this case, children that we take care of. And so that that's a really, uh, that's something I truly enjoy doing. But the mentoring and working with the more junior people is something I really enjoy. You did not know that you wanted to be a physician. You did not know you wanted to be a professor. You did not know you wanted to be any of these things. You just studied physics in college. and then no, Well, it actually goes back a little further than that. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a mad scientist. So I remember at a fairly young age, 
I'd get one of my uh, my mother's uh, long blouses, like a lab coat, put that on, and I'd set stuff up. I had a little laboratory out in the garage room, and uh, and then my parents, think my mother, they, they uh, I don't know, I guess they didn't make a mistake, but they really indulged me on things, and uh, and they bought me, they wanted to buy me a chemistry set, so I was about seven or eight, and so I want the biggest one in the Sears catalog. So they bought this chemistry set that was probably designed for a teenager. But, you know, here I am with this chemistry set and totally unsupervised. And, uh, and I'm working at just having, having a ball. And then one day I thought, well, what would happen if I were to boil alcohol? And, of course, I didn't realize alcohol was flammable. And uh, so I started boiling it. And lo and behold, it boiled over and caught the desk on fire. My mother ran in without missing a beat, got a wet towel stamped out the fire, and then gathered up the chemistry set, folded it all up, took it out to the trash. <laughs> <laughs> Threw it away. Threw it away, but I got it out a couple of days later. So I knew I wanted to do something related to science, but I think uh, it was probably when I got into college, I started uh, thinking about uh, medical school. And then, uh, and then the, the, the mentor I had in college, he says, well, you know, you don't have to choose between being a scientist or being a physician. You can be both. There's what's called a physician scientist, and that's an MD who does research. And unfortunately, it has been a dying breed for a number of years, but uh, I think it's trying to make a bit of resurgence. Uh, usually research, uh, probably most, well, for the fact, most research now funded by the NIH, for example, is done by PhDs, and that's pretty much all they do is research. But uh, there are a significant number of medical doctors, MDs, uh, and some of them even have a dual degree, have an MD and a PhD, but not all. And they do a clinical and basic research as well. And that's uh, what I became interested in. And that's kind of where I kind of went with my career. But you wanted to be a mad scientist when you were a kid. That's what you're saying. And so you wanted, yeah. you got this set and you just have had all these curiosities and you just wanted to take risks and experiment. So there was this sense of exploration that yeah, yeah, you that, were attracted that to. It really turned me on. It really appealed to me. Yeah. And, and then, when I, then that was a bit more solidified when I got into high school. I had some, uh, a couple of science teachers who were very, uh, uh, you know, very supportive and did a great, I mean, uh, you know, physics, chemistry, all those things were very uh, stimulating. So, yeah, I, I, that's, the, that's sort of the route I got into and followed it, and it worked out very well for me, and I'm, I'm glad it happened. Curious, you were talking, you said a couple things that we'll come back to. One was, it's a dying breed, but making a resurgence. And then secondly, you just talked about, well, I would assume, obviously, the importance of innovation, research, improving the quality of life, helping children, uh, continuing to find cures for things that where there's not any now. But I'm just curious, from your career standpoint, or for the last, you know, the amount of years from Chicago to, you know, Little Rock to Memphis, how has research changed within your own field, within your own work? How have you seen that? I mean, has it been fast? Has it been slow and steady? What's it looked like for you? Well, I think it, I think it has changed. And I think, uh, for example, when I started out, with the basic research arm, it was kind of of the model, the physician scientist then, the model was, you know, you, you were um, 
you did everything. You saw patients, you were the consummate clinician, you uh, were the expert teacher, you were the, uh, you know, the groundbreaking researcher, you had your own lab, and, and then basically you were mostly independent. You, you did your own research projects and, you know, that kind of thing. But as, uh, as science uh, in the field has moved forward, it has become uh, a collaborative endeavor. In other words, you, you don't work in a vacuum. Uh, you know, there are collaborative groups in various research areas. And that's really now, um, that's really the only way to do research now, is you are part of a team that may tackle a particular disease or, or field, and everybody on that team has a somewhat different skill to bring to the table to, uh, to do that, and you all have to work together. The National Institutes of Health are moving toward, rather than funding individual research grants to just one you know, investigator, to doing what they call multiple PI grants, where there are several uh, senior investigators on one grant that all work together. Obviously, the, in, in, in my field for gastroenterology and liver disease, for example, uh, that I work in, Another major uh, thing that came along uh, not not that long ago was uh, interest in the microbiome, you know, the uh, the microorganisms that live in your GI tract. Uh, of course, they are also on your skin and uh, populate other areas of your body. But, th- you know, the things that have developed in that area where, you know, the microbiome has now to some degree been shown to influence your body's metabolism, have an impact on your propensity to develop obesity. There's even interest in possible impact of microbiome on uh, psychiatric disease and other kind of far-reaching diseases. And so again, that's a fast moving area that I think will have uh, a major impact on, uh, on all of us at some point. Uh, another thing is uh, the explosion of uh, of large data, these huge data sets that come from uh, genetic research and uh, uh, metabolomics and, and other uh, omics research, the science had to further and develop to be able to handle and, and utilize large data sets. So getting into bioinformatics, that's another fairly recent and, and big area that uh, is really important. The whole idea of personalized medicine uh, where, you know, uh, the therapy is individualized to the patient to fit their, their makeup, you know, their particular disease, their genetic code, you know, all the aspects about you to optimize how, how rapidly you metabolize drugs. Uh, that's all, you know, that's be- becoming all uh, part of your um, personalized prescription so, you know, there's it, still a lot of change in, along those lines. Those are some of the high points, but, uh, you know, you, and you kind of have to adapt and have to really work to keep up or you get, you know, you get left behind. If you don't. Yeah. Are you pleased with the progress of innovation and change and, and development or is it something that as you think back for a period of years, is it frustrating that it seems that to have to be dealing with the same things over and over again? Well, you know, it all it's going to always seem slow. If you're someone who really, you know, wants to see it move and really, you know, gets excited, it's always going to move slower than you want it to. But on the other hand, I think uh, having it be a bit more deliberate and, uh, and well-considered is also important, too. 
new therapies and new treatments and uh, therapeutic approaches. Uh, they can be very exciting and show great promise. But on the other hand, there can be significant side effects and, and other problems that uh, unless you really, you know, carefully move forward, uh, you know, you want to be sure you don't miss anything like that. That's why uh, new drug trials, I mean, it's very frustrating when a, a new drug is developed. You know, it goes through first all the laboratory work, you know, testing in, in animals and, you know, developing what, what are the toxicities and that kind of thing. But, you know, animals aren't people. You do have to do the, the human studies. And, you know, uh, if you look at how long it takes from the laboratory development of a, of a new drug and has to go through all, you know, the preclinical testing and then the early human testing, the phase one testing, and then it has to go through, we have to go through all, all the processes it has to go through, maybe a dozen years or so from the first step till it's on the market. And anywhere along the way, something could happen that it would be totally done away with, some serious side effect or whatever may crop up anywhere along the way and could, you know, could basically just uh, derail the whole thing. So that's a bit frustrating, but on the other hand, you know, that's the way you need to do it and be careful and, uh, and make sure that you, you do no harm and that the, the benefit to risk ratio is, is high and you're going to have something that's truly going to be helpful. Yes, sir. And does the FDA govern or over, oversee the development that you're talking about with pediatrics yeah. from this oh, yeah. past year from COVID-19 and the speed and acceleration, how things happened with COVID and, you know, Moderna and Pfizer and Johnson Johnson, et cetera. Are you feeling or seeing any impact on the speed at which that happened? Or do you feel like that's going to affect you in any way? Well, now that, I think that's a, that's a very interesting and kind of unique case, the development of, of the vaccines. For, you know, for those two, the, uh, the messenger RNA technology that was used to develop those vaccines had actually been in development for several years and is theoretically a platform that could be used to develop, you know, vaccines for other, you know, infections and whatever, too. But I think given the seriousness and the urgency of the need for a vaccine, uh, I think Overall, it was done, uh, although quickly and expeditiously, I think it was done reasonably safely. And they got those the clinical trials that had to be done to look at risk, side effects, and efficacy, you know, how well it worked. I think they were done reasonably well. And, you know, now uh, they're completing uh, trials in children, and they are already approving the use of the vaccine in kids down to age 12. And, and we, we're involved at Lobana and other treatments such as the antibody treatment you've heard about. Uh, we're starting a study uh, in, in children for that treatment. I think all things considered, it was, it was done balancing urgency of the problem and uh, yet at the same time trying to be uh, you know, reasonably safe and, and collect and generate all the appropriate data. I, I think it was done pretty well. So in a, in, for a layman like myself, it's important to understand that there were things in place already to help put the vaccines in a position to then do additional research and innovation, et cetera, 
to where it seems like such a tight timeline on the production, there was other things already in place that most of us wouldn't be aware of. Is that what you're saying? All right. And, and, and I said that the, the, the platform by that, I mean, the system of using uh, messenger RNA that you inject that goes into your cells, it directs your cells to make a specific protein in the virus that then is recognized by your immune system and you make antibodies to it. Uh, you can just as easily plug in uh, the genetic program, uh, the RNA for uh, a protein from another virus. So, and, and get you know a, a, vaccine, a vaccine for a totally different infection, but it would be the same kind of uh, mechanism of, of, of how it works for all of them. And I think, uh, and, and that, that's really great because we're gonna have more pandemics. I mean, there are gonna be other viruses that are gonna emerge sooner or later and having that all worked out of how to get it developed quickly. I'm sure they learned a lot about how to get these trials done, the clinical trials done quickly. Uh, I think all that experience will will pay off for future. I mean, heaven forbid, you know, we have something else like another um, uh, COVID-19, you know, pandemic, but it could very well happen. And I think this is going to help us be prepared for that. So were the years prior leading up to last year, were you and other professionals like yourself, were y'all anticipating a virus of some sort happening at some time in the future? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I, I'm, that's not, I mean, I'm not an infectious disease expert, but I think we all were expecting it to happen. I mean, it's happened periodically. You know, there have been other viruses. They just didn't, we, we luckily, they were not as virulent and didn't spread as, as, as quickly or have the ability to spread. But I think there's always the potential out there for them. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it, you know, everyone was anticipating that, you know, we, we, we dodged a bullet on some of these early pandemics. But I think everybody thought, well, sooner or later, we're going to get one that's going to be uh, more impactful. It's going to be more contagious. It's going to be more virulent. And, and the, the, um, the current uh, pandemic could have been much worse but you know it, it, was, it was bad enough as it is. We were able to get a vaccine. We, we learned a lot. I think that'll be useful for the future. And I think we just uh, you know keep all that. Don't forget about all that. Keep it in mind and keep it at the ready. Was the last pandemic we had was that 1918? Oh well, no, that was the the, the last big uh, you know uh, serious pandemic. You know we had uh, Zika virus and yeah, we've had some this Ebola. Ebola, Zinka, but these were very, very, they were, they were contained for the most part and limited, not really to the scale of a, of a pandemic, but uh, clearly, you know, they did spread and we had, you know, for instance, Ebola, we had a handful of cases that made it to our shores yeah. uh, and they, they, you know, could have been a lot worse, but uh, you know, they mainly not so much with how we ha- we handled it, but just limitations of the virus itself kind of protected us. But, you know, this, I think it was anticipated, again, this was going to happen. And uh, we, we now will for sure not let our, you know, our vigilance and our uh, defenses down. And we'll hopefully the next time we'll have an even quicker response, more effective response uh, to, to something similar that might crop up. It's just so easy to f- have perspective and think you're going through something for the first time. And I'm not 
downplaying it whatsoever, belittling anything at all. I mean, it's not the case, but you know, it's like last year, <laughs> so easy to just think you're the first, you know, generation of people to go through something like it. And you look back and well, you're, if, if you go back and look, you know, the, uh, again, the, uh, the big pandemic, you know, in 1918, if you actually go back and look at some of the historical documents and everything, you know, folks were wearing masks back then and doing a, you know, doing a lot of the same things we're doing now, except they did not have, you know, a really effective treatment for it. But you can see a lot of similarities if you look at some of the old photographs and signs they they put up, uh, you know, and the folks were walking around wearing masks and that kind of thing. So it's history, you know, does kind of repeat itself in a lot of ways. Right. You were talking about students earlier, and it, it sounds well. We haven't haven't asked you yet, which I'll do that in a minute about pediatrics specifically. But you were talking about the love of it sounds like teaching of investing in younger professionals as their students, and then as they're finishing up and they're starting, you know, they're starting their careers, et cetera. You like pouring into them, you like mentoring them, you like mm-hmm. you like helping them. So there's an aspect to teaching and mentoring that sounds that you get a lot of fulfillment from and it sounds very much connected to what you still do today. And I know you're, you also teach at university. So I'm just curious, what are the things or what are the throughout your career with the students that you pour into, what are the things that you see in them that turn out to be common denominators for the best physicians or for the best scientists, et cetera? Well, the ones that, will be good physicians, great physicians, and and researchers as well. I, I think there's kind of a combination of qualities that one has to, to develop and cultivate to be ultimately a, a successful physician scientist. And, you know, obviously, the ones who are, who are bright, motivated, they, uh, uh, I think another thing you throw in there is persistence. You know, you if, if you want to, uh, you know, for instance, identify and uh, and get a mentor or have you know one of your te- your professors or your teachers to mentor you. Sometimes you've got to pester them a little bit and show them you're really, you know, you you're not going to give up. You you really do want their help. Uh, I think you have to do a little bit of that. If you give up too easy, uh, I think that can be a problem. Uh, but also at the same time, I think you have to have a thick skin. You know, there. Even when you are further down the road and you're a researcher, there are going to be times when you get a grant review back or a manuscript you try to publish and you get a review back, and there might be really nasty comments uh, from the reviewers. And you can't like say, "Oh, that's I'm crushed. That's terrible. I'm going to give up." You you take it in stride. If there's positive uh, feedback you can get from that, you take it, and then you rewrite the grant or you rewrite the manuscript and you you keep at it and don't let that, you know, get to you. I think probably the most important thing for research, though, is, you know, research, uh, if you do mainly medical research in an academic setting, you're not going to get rich, okay? You'll make maybe a comfortable living, but it has to be something you enjoy. And, uh, and really, I think the best term for it is really you have to have a f- fire in the belly for it. It's not only you want to do it, 
It's like you can't help doing it. It's something you're driven to do. And those are the folks who, who are most successful re- with research, is they live and breathe it. And, uh, and they enjoy it, and it's fulfilling for them, and they can't keep from doing it. And those are the ones I think who do really well. And you, you try to identify that at an early stage in students and trainees. If you see it, you try to maybe cultivate it and uh, you know, uh, develop it along with those other uh, qualities that I mentioned. And not every one of them is going to make it. Uh, however, uh, one of the things that UT has, UTHSC has, I think is a great program, and they've had it for 40 years, uh, funded by the NIH, and that's a medical student summer research program. And that is every uh, medical student, junior medical student, can get a stipend to work over the summer with a research mentor. You know, one of the faculty who does research and work in their laboratory or maybe do clinical research with them and do a project. Now, the importance of that is there are students who do that, do a good job and, you know, enjoy it. But at the end of the time, they say, gee, I'm, I'm glad I had a chance to do that, but that's, that's just not for me, okay? I'm glad I, glad I tried it, because if I hadn't tried it, I wouldn't know for sure. Then occasionally, you'll run into another student who, who maybe had never done research before, but did that summer and come out of it and say, gee, this is really neat. I really like this, and I want to keep doing this, and this may even be what I want to you know, make my career into. And that is so really fulfilling to see that. Because, and then you think about what if that student never had that opportunity? And you may have, uh, I mean, be a, maybe not too far a stretch, you might have a Nobel Prize winner there one day who uh, maybe wouldn't have taken that path if they hadn't had the opportunity to try it out and get a, a flavor for research and see that that's what they wanted to do. Uh, so I think you know, I think that experiences like that are really important. And then for those uh, who do move along, you want to, uh, mentorship is really important. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS, that's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. So when you say people that they can't help but, I mean, they can't think not just not doing it, and you're talking about people that where they have a fire in their belly for research. What is it about that that they're just locked in on or that they just are singularly focused on? You know, if, if you're around people like that, uh, which I am a lot, uh, folks who are really dedicated, uh, we have them here in our institute. You know, 
they're, they're, they're cool folks and, you know, you can hang out with them, whatever, but almost always, eventually, whenever, you, even in an informal setting, the conversation is going to turn to research because they can't help it. That's, that's what they live and breathe. And, uh, and their love of that and their dedication to it leads to persistence and they, and they keep at it, have the thick skin, you know, all the other, uh, other properties. They're going to be successful at some point, uh, make a breakthrough or, or do well. And, uh, and it's just a, and it's a quality that, you know, when, when you meet somebody uh, who does research uh, and you, you chat with them a little bit, you kind of pick up on that pretty quick. That that's what they have just by listening to their enthusiasm again, and their dedication, and, and they, that's what they want to talk about. You know, you try to change the subject and, you know, talk about the weather or, you know, whatever, and, it, and they'll immediately come back, well, I'm working on this right now. It's really exciting. And have you heard about this? Or have you read this paper? Or, you know, again, I don't think it's a quality that you, to some degree, it's almost, it's kind of program hardwired in to some degree. I don't necessarily think you can teach it. You know, you kind of has to be, you can help develop it and you can help nurture it. But I think to some degree, it's something that, that uh, some folks just uh, are, I, w- I won't say born with, but it's a property or a characteristic they have inherent. Is that the way you were and are? Well, I think so. Or otherwise, I would have retired, I guess. No. I, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I get up every morning anxious to get to work and look forward to it. And I'm, you know, always thinking about it. And uh, now, of course, I, I do a lot of work with, again, the junior people and I do collaborative uh, research and I just never get tired of it. And, um, you know, it's like, again, there's always something new just around the bend, something exciting. And, uh, and again, I, I just uh, thrive on that. So I guess, this, I guess I must have that. If you take 20 of your friends, a couple friends, men and women, all different walks of life, how many of that 20 do you think would say the same thing that you said where when they wake up in the morning, they're anxious to get to work? Well, I can only go by what I can, uh, you know, discern from talking to them and no, I, I can't tell what they're thinking, but I can, I can see how dedicated they are to their profession. And of those folks who, who are, you know, uh, middle-aged, who have a career and they're active in it, I'd have to say, now that I think about it, uh, probably two-thirds or more uh, have some, some property like that or some, uh, some of those characteristics. They, they enjoy their work. Uh, they talk about it a lot. They're pretty successful at it. The prof- again, these are the professional people I know. But it, now that you mention it, though, I, I, I spread it uh, to kind of generalize that a little bit. One of the other things I do is uh, I co-own a record company uh, nice. with uh, Robert Wyatt, who's a pediatric nephrologist, Black and Wyatt Records. We started a couple of years ago to promote Memphis rock and roll. And I think about the musicians that we support. And, you know, they're... Uh, they have a lot of these same properties I'm talking about uh, with this fire in the belly for research, except they have fire in the belly for music. Yeah. And, you know, they, they don't make much money. They um, face a lot of barriers in getting their music, uh, you know, re- recorded and, you know, be successful at it. But they love doing it and they can't help doing it. 
they would do it no matter what. And so maybe that's why I have an affinity to, to those folks as well, because in a lot of ways, they are like successful uh, biomedical researchers, but in their own in their own field. So, yeah, it's it's a, it's a quality. Not it's not unique to, to research. Yes, sir. I, I don't think so. I just I also know a lot, a lot of people that don't feel that way. And so I, I think it's a seems like a gift that you're able to experience that and live out of that. Well, I'm certainly thankful I turned out that way. <laughs> yeah. When you see somebody, when you see that in them, you talked about you try to develop it and you try to draw it out. Mm-hmm. Can you think of an example where you did see that in someone? And how? what are the things that you focus on when you're trying to draw it out that really pays a benefit to them? Well, sometimes, you know, they, you see it, but maybe they don't necessarily fully see it to the point where they're ready to take the plunge to, to dedicate themselves to that. So I, I try to counsel them. I try to tell them, I said, you know, I've, I've watched you work on this project. I've seen how well you think things through. You know, you, you're, you're very uh, talented in how you uh, think about experiments, how you think about science, and, you know, you, you're a good thinker and you're motivated. I said, you know, I really think you have potential, real uh, significant potential for research. Well, usually the next thing they say, well, how in the world do I, what do I do next? You know, how do I further develop that? And then that's where I try to give them some advice on next steps. For example, uh, when I was in medical school, uh, one of my uh, attending physicians who was a gastroenterologist asked me after rounds one day, gee, you know, would you like to come to my lab and do research? I said, well, sure. You know, I'll give it a try. So I went to his laboratory and I did a three-month elective doing research in his lab. Really enjoyed it, and he kind of really mentored me, uh, you know, gave me advice and submitted, you know, a, a paper for publication. And, you know, and, and then he said, okay, well, if you like that and think this is what you might want to do, the next step is to get uh, a grant so you'll get uh, paid for doing research during your fellowship in GI. So after, so after I did my pediatric uh, residency, I got two of the three years of my fellowship paid for by an NIH grant uh, to do more research. And, you know, then I had, it was, uh, my time was protected with that grant, but I had protected time to do just research. Then that led to a bigger NIH grant, you know, to do more research and have more, more time. So, and, and then all the way, I had people telling me, okay, you need to go to scientific meetings. You get, need to get to know people. You need to network. You need to collaborate. You know, you need to uh, get on the panels that review grants, and they had connections, and they would introduce me to people. And, and, and you know, a, a lot of things that I would have no way of knowing on my own, that, that they passed along to me. And they offered encouragement. And when I would have a problem or get discouraged, I had someone I could go to and talk to about it, and they would give me a good advice on how to get through it. And, um, and I just think, you know, if you can provide that to someone who's young and promising, uh, and then they do navigate through all of that and come out the other end successful, it's just very uh, rewarding to see that. 
You talked about having thick skin. Can you give an example of when you submitted a paper or research document, et cetera, and you got, you know, you got some harsh feedback or whatever that may have been. I assume that's happened. Oh yeah. Right? Well, Cause you wouldn't have talked about it unless it hadn't happened to you. But then can you give an example to kind of put that in context? Well, the first, uh, the first large, you know, the, 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 the large NIH grants are called R01, R01 grants. They're usually five years and they're a significant amount of money. And that's really what you shoot for is, you know, you kind of, kind of know you're pretty much getting there when you get one of those funded. Well, the first one I applied for, the first time I applied for it, and I had some help writing it and everything, but I, I, I thought, this is, a fa- this is a cool grant. This is going to, boy, they're going to score this at the top of the heap. You know, I just thought it was wonderful. Well, I got it back, and you have three reviewers, you know, who write reviews on your grant. They're anonymous. And one of them liked it okay, but the other two just tore it apart. They, they didn't like the experiments. They didn't look like how I designed them. They just, it was, it was just this negative. Now, I was crushed. I thought, well, I'm just going to have to find something else to do. This, this is awful. But again, the mentor who I had at that time, I took it to him and I showed it to him. And he looked at it and he read it. And he said, well, this looks like the first grant I sent in. I got the same thing. He says, but what you do, you don't get discouraged. You don't throw in the towel. Let's go through this and look at their comments and see what kind of positive, constructive criticism you can pull out of it so you can revise the grant and make, make those changes and, and send it back in. And I said, okay, so we did that. And I, you know, kind of had to distance myself from, you know, the, the negative, what I perceived as the negative aspects of the critiques. And I, we actually identified, you know, several things that, that, that I could change and revise, which is what you do. So I revised the grant and I just kind of, you know, just didn't stay frustrated, but just became, okay, we're going to revise it. We're going to send it back in. I did that and I got it funded. I got a good well, score the next time. Is that where you learn to be a scientist by not taking things personally? That's part of it. You know, I mean, that's not to say that never happens, but for the most part, you know, if you get, if you get negative comments, you're going to take them probably a lot more negatively than they really were intended. Yeah. In other words, they may be, maybe the reviewer was, was trying to be constructive, but because it criticized your wonderful work that you put into that grant, you're going to take it probably negatively, at least until you learn, learn the ropes about it. In other words, it may, it may not have been intended to be something ugly or nasty, or, uh, but you may take it that way. But you got to learn not to. you got to try to look at it objectively and see what you can get out of it to help you um, improve it. And then often that will uh, lead to you, you'll get it. Or it could be the same way with the manuscript. You're trying to get published in a journal. You handle that the same way and you revise it, resubmit it, and you will often get it published next time. It's really helpful. I mean, just kind of taking that nugget, what that person said to you, just look at it, dissect it, take everything that they said that was encouraging or, you know, positive about the work, frame everything around that, take the constructive, understand why that was not in line with whatever it is they were thinking when they wrote it. I mean, that's a beautiful way to apply that across the board. That's true. Yeah. I mean, you're right. You could apply that to other professions as well. You know, I, th- I think you do have to learn to have an optimistic, positive outlook. 
you know, you, and you can't, and it gets back a little bit to the thick skin and everything. You, you know, you, you just uh, take it in stride, take what you can from it that will be helpful to you and constructive for you and go forward with that and try to leave the rest of the baggage on the dock <laughs> yeah, and, and move ahead. Well, and that's the hard part, especially, and it seems like there's a theme where there's somebody there to keep you in the game, so to speak, because if you're putting out all your chips on the table mm-hmm. and, you know, you're betting black, it goes red. <laughs> it's so easy for all those thoughts to come in that I'm not supposed to do this. Am I good enough for this? All, and you can just live in that right. state of pain, mental pain. But then it's a beautiful thing the way you described it for somebody to be there and, and who didn't have, sound like you have a big ego and just said, Hey, that's what happened to me. Now I will say this. Uh, one of the, one of the first mentors I had uh, when I was a medical, also when I was a medical student at UT was, um, a junior professor at the time, uh, he was an assistant professor in physiology, Patrick So, TSO. And uh, he was just, he, you know, he was a junior faculty member just getting his first big NIH grant. And he was next to the guy who was head of gastroenterology. His lab was next to his. And so I started hanging out in his lab too, because he did some cool stuff. And we kind of hit it off. And uh, he, started teaching me some things and having me in his lab and make a long story short later on uh, in my career uh, I collaborated with him and published papers with him and even now now he is about to retire in June uh, but he is still he's still my dear friend but I still ask his advice about things and you know sort of bounce ideas off and if I have uh, run into something, a problem, even, even at this stage of the game, uh, it's always good to have someone like that. It doesn't necessarily have to be a former mentor, but somebody in the field who you have a friendship with, who you can discuss problems that come up because, you know, even, even people who've been in this for years and are senior uh, investigators will have a grant that gets dinged real bad or something and do need someone to talk to and uh, get advice from. So. I guess what I'm saying is the need for some type of mentorship in this uh, in this field really never ends. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, you still have it going on in some form or another, even even in the later later years. What was it about pediatrics that drew you to it? Well, when I was a medical student, you know, we we do all of our classroom training, teaching, you know, learning first. Then we go do the clinical rotations. So the first clinical rotation I did was in surgery, okay? So I spent time uh, with the surgeons and, you know, and they're a really, you know, hardworking, tough gang, you know, and, and, and I just didn't like that life. I just didn't, that just didn't appear. I said, okay, well, I'm, not, I'm definitely not going to want to be a surgeon. <laughs> and, and then I did internal medicine and I was at the VA hospital for that. And, you know, it, it, just, it just didn't turn me on. I mean, it just, you know, there, there, at that time, though, they'd have a patient who came in, would be admitted, and they'd sit around for a week waiting for a CT scan. And it just moved slow. And, 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 and again, I, I just didn't. So I said, okay, that's two, two down. Then I did pediatrics. And 
the pediatricians, I thought, were such nice folks. They, uh, they had great rapport. They really cared for their patients and, and the parents. And, and, they, uh, and almost without exception, just very empathetic kind of caring people, which I think kind of draws people into pediatrics. And I said, okay, these are the folks I want to hang out with. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's really what got me into pediatrics. Are you still seeing patients now? Yeah. I, I wouldn't want to give that up. I do, uh, I do a half-day clinic a week where I see, you know, 12 to 15 patients. I have patients I've been following for years. I have um, a patient who I started seeing when he was about 10 years old. He's now finishing medical school. <laughs> wow. I have another patient I saw when she was an infant, when I was a fellow with a, a rare disease. Uh, and I diagnosed and treated her with, with my attending when I was a uh, fellowship. She's now in her 30s and has two kids. And she still occasionally comes back to visit, you know, my clinic. So, yeah, I wouldn't want to give that up completely. You know, I, I don't have time to do uh, with all the other stuff I do. I don't really have time to, to, to see a lot of patients, but I really enjoy doing it. And I do um, a few weeks, two or three weeks a year on the wards, doing attending, you know, teaching the residents and medical students and whatever. Uh, I'll, I'll do that as well because I really enjoy doing that. So are you in the, in the research institute four and a half days? And then you're, you have patients a half day or are you I at University of Tennessee? I have patients a half day. Uh, these are at Le Bonner East is where I have my clinic. But the rest of the time, I'm in the research, physically in the research institute here, the Children's Foundation Research Institute. Yes, sir. So I was trying to get some context. I, I would imagine it's easy if you don't have kids or if your kids hadn't been to Le Bonner or another pediatric hospital around the country, you don't really have appreciation for what you do, for what others do, for the impact. But if you have a child at Le Bonner or you have a child at one of the other pediatric hospitals around the country, uh, I would imagine it's the most important event of someone's life, if not, you know. And so I saw, I was trying to put in some context, and I saw that Le Bonner has about 14,000 patients a year, uh, is what I saw. Of that 14,000, how many Roughly, and I don't know what I can ask and what I can't. There's no angle to any of this. It's just curiosity about your work for gastroenterology. Did I say that right? Gastroenterology. Gastroenterology. Well, we we do three things. We're gastroenterology. We're also hepatology. That's liver disease and nutrition. Uh, we take care of kids with various nutritional disorders and uh, need support for that. So, how many of those? let's say 14,000 patients come through your portion of the hospital? Well, a fraction of that. I mean, we probably have, uh, and I'm totally giving you extremely raw numbers because I, I, you know, our division chief would keep up with that a lot more than I. Right. But I would say um, we would see both inpatient, outpatient in a year, maybe a thousand of those or so. Uh, keep in mind that also probably includes uh, the emergency room and, you know, other other uh, parts of the hospital that are fairly high volume. Are there things from the Research Institute that are the biggest challenges that you see th 
through the numbers of those visits that you're most focused on right now trying to well, solve or others are trying yeah, to solve? Well, one of the challenges, you know, we do, we do both kinds of research. We do the basic research in the laboratory, but we do a lot of clinical research where we do research with patients. And research with humans in general is a lot more complicated uh, than doing animal research or, you know, research with cells. Uh, you know, we deal with uh, the Institutional Review Board. That's an independent review board that UT has that reviews all human research, and you have to get their approval uh, before you can do the studies. There are very stringent rules for for recruiting patients, for record keeping, for uh, looking looking at adverse events, you know, that's just very, very, it's very intensive to keep up with all of that, very labor intensive. We have a large staff of personnel who function in all aspects of that. And it's particularly, you know, children are considered by the FDA uh, as a vulnerable population because, you know, they uh, generally, the parents, the one who makes the decision about their participation in a research study. Now, if they're an older child, we get what is called assent. That is, they also have to sign a portion of the consent form, and it's been explained to them at their level what's going to be done to them. But, you know, again, it's, uh, it, it is a lot of things about pediatric research that's different from clinical research on adults. And it's a challenge to, to get it all done, but I mean, obviously it's worthwhile and we wouldn't do it any other way. But, uh, but it is a challenge to, to maintain the staff, the funding, you know, all the, uh, all the things you need to have to make that all go smoothly and efficiently. And we've been uh, lucky. We've got support from the hospital. We've had support from, uh, I said, the Children's Foundation of Memphis has been our by far biggest supporter and continue to be so. The Assisi Foundation has been another, another big supporter. Uh, we've gotten funding from the Hyde Foundation and others as well. And we have, you know, grants and contracts with uh, NIH and, uh, and pharma companies who, you know, fund uh, drug trials and that kind of thing. But, you know, it's... Uh, Research of the type we do in an academic setting, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a profitable operation. It's basically a break-even at best. Uh, and you have to keep a diverse portfolio of funding. So we're always fundraising, and Labonner has been great about helping with that. And, you know, we're part of the Labonner Endowment. There's a portion of the endowment that's dedicated to research. So we've been lucky, you know, in a lot of ways uh, that we've had such great support from a number of different sources. But that's also, but you got to, you got to, you know, keep that all going. It's got to keep coming in. Yeah. Can you share anything about the biggest focus that you have right now in your team on what's out there that you feel can be done that you're just, you're locked in on trying to figure out? Well, one of the things that we, uh, and this goes back to the Mary Armour years, we have really, and, and John McCullers and Al Michael Wiggins, we really want to focus most of our efforts on the problems that plague our pop local population. Is that obesity? And, uh, obesity is one of them. We have a lot of uh, concern and interest with uh, 
health disparities relates, related to race and socioeconomic factors and what are called um, uh, social determinants of health. And we, uh, we're trying to bring a lot of that into our research. Uh, for example, one project we're working on right now is how to address prevention and early treatment of, of diabetes in children. If you look at CDC map for type two diabetes, now I'm talking now not about type one diabetes or, child, or juvenile diabetes which is due to not enough insulin. Uh, type two or is adult type diabetes that's usually often related to obesity and lifestyle and things like that, where you, the insulin, you have a lot of insulin, but the organs don't respond. Well, we're seeing a lot of that now in kids where formerly we didn't. And on the CDC map, if you look at the, the darkest you know, part of the map which of the country, which is what the highest incidence, we're right in the middle of that here in uh, the South. And we're seeing it uh, in kids. If you look at type 2 diabetes, if you don't get it under control or treat it early, uh, it, it, we're actually targeting what's called pre-diabetes before it gets to the stage of full-blown type 2 diabetes, where the blood sugar is elevated, but not in the range that you see with frank diabetes. If you catch it at that stage, that early stage, it's actually reversible with just uh, physical activity and diet and those kinds of things if they can be effectively you know, implemented. So we're working on a project where we're trying to identify by using geomapping, we know what, what sections, zip codes, and so forth in the city have by far the highest prevalence of prediabetes and diabetes, as well as all the barriers to being able to target and treat those kids, uh, such as, again, the social determinants of health, poor access to healthcare, uh, Food islands, you know, there's no way to buy healthy food that's not real expensive or that's available at all. Problems with parenting and parents. I mean, it goes, the list goes on. Because those are the ones that if you try to bring them into the hospital or the clinic to treat, uh, there's a high attrition rate. They don't come back, you know. So we're trying to, to identify, we're doing, trying to get started with a pilot study that will identify those kids. And basically, we will institute an intervention that they can do at home and do in their community. And Labonner Community Outreach you know, has been doing a great job with uh, that type of thing with teen pregnancy and other things. And we're trying to use it to address diabetes. And if, and for example, uh, we would have a physical activity prescription. One of our, one of our faculty Webb Smith is an exercise physiologist, and he's developed this exercise prescription that uh, you personalize the physical activity or everything to the child based on their needs. And then you have a coach who communicates with them remotely, checks in on them at home. We use devices that record their physical activity and transmit that to the coach so they can be followed up on you know, uh, closely, but you don't, have, you don't have to bring them into the hospital Right. Time to do that. You can do this intervention at home. So things like that that are, are, are a bit innovative, but enable us to target and effectively identify and, and treat these patients 
at an early stage when you can prevent, because by the time someone has frank, full-blown type 2 diabetes, it's very hard to reverse that. You're basically just trying to treat it. And when you think about, you have this developing in teenagers, full-blown type 2, so-called adult type diabetes, and you think about all the complications that's going to lead to. It's going to, it is, your, 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 uh, your heart, uh, your kidneys, your eyes, your liver, and medical costs that are going to be there, not to, not to even consider the human cost, but the medical expense and cost, health stress on the healthcare system for their lifespan. And it becomes just almost imperative that we really focus a lot on identifying and treating these kids in an early stage. Yes, sir. Let's say you take that thousand that I asked you about earlier, and because you're and your team are focused on this specific challenge and you've laid out how you're using data, how you're being proactive, how you can create the most impact if you catch it at a certain time, et cetera, and then what the solution looks like and why that's beneficial and the consequences. Are you saying that's a large percentage of the patients that you that your team has? Well, that's so that's one among several. I mean, uh, another one, you know, I mean, that's, that's a focus, right? We, we, we want to work on getting that off the ground right now. So that's like a focus in that regard right now. But another one that, uh, that came up uh, and was fairly successful just a few years ago was asthma. You know, we, we're also on a hot spot for asthma here in Memphis. And there was a program developed called the CHAMP program that targeted schools and school nurses to do asthma management in the schools as opposed to, again, them having to come in the hospital to the clinic to do all of that. And that resulted in a dramatic decrease in hospitalizations and emergency room visits for those kids because a lot of the flares and asthma you know, exacerbations could be kind of preemptively detected in school and be effectively treated and dealt with. And, and so, again, not just to mention the uh, impact on health, again, it, you're saving uh, resources and uh, reducing healthcare expenses and that kind of thing by doing that, and you're delivering better care to the patients. It's wild to me to hear how so many things that go on in our world are interconnected, and, and then also on a lot of different fronts now, how data obviously can be used in negative ways, but it's also being used in a lot of ways to try to solve problems that haven't been able to be solved. And it's trying to be used to be very proactive about trying to catch things early. And I don't know how you feel about these things, but it just almost kind of sounds depressing, not the work you're doing and not the effort and the consistency and the research and the dollars on making all this happen and trying to really create a solution and make an impact, but just depressing to the standpoint of challenges that face, you know, our country and our world. Doesn't matter if you're on the Western part of the United States or the Eastern part. And obviously there's, it's not the same by any means, but how it's all interconnected. And you just, you talk to a number of professionals over time who are locked in on their specific path and they're trying to make a difference in that specific way. But when you pull the thread, there's a lot of similarities into how to try to go about 
solving the problem and how to use things to solve the problem. And when you think about what's actually going to create solutions in a lot of different ways on a lot of different things to even fathom that actually happening, it can, I mean, I know you can't have that attitude where it's just like an albatross of a thing, but it's just, I don't know. That's what I was just thinking about when you were talking. I, I see exactly what you're saying. And I, and I, to some degree agree, but you know, it's almost like getting back to the research. You know, we got, we can't help not doing it. This is something we're all dedicated to. We, we, uh, we can't help ourselves doing it. We, 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 we feel very, uh, it's very rewarding and it's, uh, you know, really, really um, something that makes us feel useful and that we're really doing something that's contributing to our patients children and our society. And I guess we all, you know, are hopeful, maybe not even in my lifetime, probably not. But if we can keep at it and don't give up and have a thick skin, uh, (laughs) you know, and be persistent, uh, that change will come. And I I think we're we're hopeful of that. And and sincerely, I know it's, you get frustrated and you wonder, well, how in the world is that ever going to happen? Well, it sure ain't going to happen if you don't, if you give, you know, if you kind of give up and get frustrated. So I think we all keep working at it. And there are a lot of people, and not just in pediatrics, although those are the folks I'm familiar with. I'm in the uh, pediatric uh, organization, pediatric academic societies, the professional organization of pediatrics all over the country, and, and even uh, organizations around the world. And with that, with that exception, all of us and all of all of them as as a as a worldwide group pediatricians are dedicated to making a better world for, for children and you know better health and, uh, and 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 also social socioeconomic and other factors as well and so I, knowing that knowing the folks who are involved in that I, it makes me it does make me somewhat optimistic and hopeful that things are are going to are going it may take time it'll be frustrating i'm sure but i I'm hopeful. Yes, sir. Have you, throughout your career, I know we talked earlier about that first grant that you, five-year grant, I think it was, that you applied for, but is there, just to, to that point that you just shared, is there something you've learned at at this point of your career where you go when you do experience something that's frustrating, that's a setback, or that's a failed commitment, or that something to where this strife that's just a part of life. Is there something that you've learned to kind of, to where you still have a glass half full personality and you still have a hope in the work and paying it off and nothing's going to change unless you get back to the research to what you shared earlier? Well, I think, I think the first thing, if you, when you get a setback or something frustrating, I think the first thing to do is, you know, don't just get distraught, but, you know, try to reflect, be reflective on, Okay, what happened? Why did it happen? Identify that, and what can I do maybe to make it better, or I could can, can fix it or, or redo it. And most of the time, if you give it a, a little bit of uh, careful reflection and a, and a little bit of time, it'll kind of fall into perspective. No, this is not. This is even though you thought so right at first. This is not the end of the world. This is not the end of my career. This is not. But it's uh, something that I need to work on. I need to fix. Uh, what can I learn from it? 
almost anything that happens, you can you can glean something from it that's useful for the future or you know, when it comes up again. And then I try to do what I can to, to fix it uh, and, and, then, and then move on. And I think you can't, you know, just commiserate on something to the point where you get depressed and get frustrated. You, you, you take it in stride. You don't ignore it. You, you reflect on it, get what you can out of it, uh, and, then, and then move on. I think that's really the main thing. Very early in our conversation, you were talking about physician scientists. If I'm saying it wrong, let me know. But back in the day, people used to kind of wear a lot of hats. And, you know, somebody would be a physician, they would do research, they would be a scientist, et cetera. And then it sounds like it's evolved to more. You kind of do more of one than the other. Is that a fair statement from what you shared earlier? Yeah. So, so for instance, uh, by biomedical research is to the point where it's so advanced and even specialized that to be competitive, you know, in getting grants and, and, and doing what you have to devote a sizable amount of your time. Uh, back in the day, you know, you could do one third teaching, one third patient care, one third research. Well, now it's more like 60, 75 percent research and you have to, you know, that you have the rest of it left over. So, you know, it's, it, it has changed a lot. Uh, and if you're doing patient care and that's your major commitment, it's hard to do research. But, for example, folks who mainly take care of patients can do clinical research. I mean, they're in the clinics, they're taking care of the patients, so then they can introduce uh, some, you know, some uh, human research or clinical research into that. So I think, you know, that is certainly something that can be done. But yeah, I mean the uh, you know the uh, the person the, the jack of all trades you know who who could do all of it, do it well, and uh, pretty much uh, an equal amount of commitment of time. That that's that's pretty much long gone. Would you say the rate of innovation and scientific impact to our society today has benefited by that changing? I think so. I mean it, it's. Well, I mean, it's an, it's an adaptation that has had to occur uh, given the advancement of, uh, of scientific of biomedical research. I mean, it's, as I said before, it's become collaborative. You know, you don't do everything in your lab and don't talk to anybody else. Now you're not going to make it if you don't collaborate and uh, work as part of teams. And that's been, uh, and that's really what's uh, been able to to power fuel a lot of innovation and new discoveries. And why won't you make it? Well, because if you're off by yourself, chances are whatever you're working on, if it's something that's worthwhile, you can't do it all yourself. You 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 don't have you can't have all the various facets of expertise to to attack or approach that problem and be able to solve it given the complexity uh, that we see with, uh, you know, with, with these project, uh, research projects uh, these days. Like take type 2 diabetes, for example. There's a lot of different inputs that you have to have to do that. You have to have people on the preventative side. You have to have people on the post side. And you have to have people on the, on the data side. And it's kind of like, well, this is probably a terrible example, but for technology, open APIs are the way, you know, for different software platforms to all coexist with, within each other. And then as a result, there's simplicity, ease of use, cost savings, et cetera. But if you take all this work, 
it's all these systems integrations of individuals and professionals. And for that to all happen and come together, you have to have buy-in. Well, again, I mean, that's just uh, inherent in the type of research that, you know, that, that, that's being done these days. You know, huge amounts of data, and you've heard of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Well, that's made its way into biomedical research to, to be able to, you know, process large amounts of data and do predictive modeling. That's right now, that's one of the hottest areas in research, applying that to all sorts of things. Another big project we have going on here at Labonner now is called the Big Project. It's a, uh, a biorepository and integrative genomics program. But basically, every kid who comes to the clinic or is admitted to the hospital, if they have blood drawn and some of the blood is left over, it goes into a biobank and their DNA is extracted. And we are, we have over, well over, I think now 15,000 samples of DNA. And we have made a partnership with a pharma company, Regeneron, and they are going to sequence all of that. Uh, they're going to do the, the, the DNA sequencing on all of those samples, and then we will have complete genomic data on all of our patients. And we can look at specific diseases and other conditions and link that with the genetic code, with, uh, you know, with, with the genomics. And that's gonna be a whole big area of research for us. But again, that is a huge amount of data, all of that genetic data. And so we're gonna have to invest in uh, having the bioinformatics support to just go, go through and process that, that amount of genetic data. Is that the research institute that you're talking about here that's going to have to raise money? Well, yeah, we're, we're doing this cooperatively with, with UTHSC. Uh, and so, you know, it's a joint project. And right now, we, uh, you know, we're, we've been able to fund it so far, but we're going after grants. Uh, we also became uh, part of a consortium of about five major uh, pediatric medical centers, including Harvard and others that will cooperatively work together to do projects with these data and to, you know, we'll get some, hopefully some help with the, uh, the informatics processing and, er and everything. So again, it, and it goes to this whole thing of, uh, of uh, personalized medicine, use your genetic code to help develop uh, therapies that fit you, your, your patient uniquely, and therefore hopefully would be a better therapy. And again, th th those are just the things that are, uh, that's the way research is going. That's what's in the future. And you've got to grab it, hang on to it, get with it, or it's going to pass you by. But that's, those are the, those are the, the big things right now. So you're saying never before have we been able, ha have you and, and others been able to pull everyone's DNA, or you, I think you said 12 or 15,000 samples. Well, it, yeah, it's been done before. But what makes this uh, impressive, you know, uh, and puts this kind of up there in the big league is being able to do such extensive sequencing. To analyze of the DNA. each individual person and the common denominators and then how, how to really make major advancements. Yeah. And, and, and link that with the medical records so we can take their clinical information, you know, their lab work, what uh, physical findings they have, what diseases they have. 
and then link that with the, their genomic data and be able to maybe discover causes for some diseases we didn't know about before, discover new therapies, discover maybe uh, genetic factors that would lead you to select one therapeutic approach that would work best for that patient. You know, all, all of those things uh, can come out of that, but it's a huge investment in getting the sequencing done and to getting the uh, processing the information. And that's, that's what makes it such a, a large So we, could, we can expect some major breakthroughs coming in here in the near future. Next few years. I mean, it's going to take some time, but it's, uh, it's on its way. Are you talking five years, 10 years, 50? Can you say anything like that? I, I would say within with certainly within five years we ought to be generating some uh, some findings wow that's really exciting i like to think in pediatrics that's where we maybe have the leg up <laughs> we've got we've got these folks at an early we've got these kids at an early stage where you you really and truly can intervene and prevent things if you have the right strategy and you go about it the right way and that's what we that's what we're grappling with and working with right now Yes, sir. Dr. Black, I'm very grateful to be with you this afternoon. It's been a lot of fun to learn about you, to learn about your life's work, to learn about kind of where you're at now. Still sounds like just as engaged as ever in the opportunities and the things that you and the Institute are doing, but then also to try to really tie it in to everyday life for all of us and what's coming down the road. So I've, I've really enjoyed my time, and I'm grateful for you spending time uh, on this Friday afternoon. Well, Sam, it's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and thanks for inviting me on. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. Also, please subscribe to the show, follow me on social, and join me on this curiosity-fueled journey so that you can feel that same sense of purpose and see the opportunities that are right for you. All of this at DrivenByPodcast.com. See you next time on the Driven By Podcast. Podcast.